Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Should universities consider the race of applicants when trying to build diverse student bodies? Yes, here we go again. I am talking about the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States is about to take yet another look at affirmative action. And it means, in a big picture sense, that abortion, gun rights, and race are about to be shaped by the court where Donald Trump appointed three of the nine members. Let me say at the outset, I have a lot of notes in front of me. I don't want to read to you. I don't want to lecture you. But I believe that I can inform you about this complicated subject matter. And full disclosure, I am relying on Amy Howe at SCOTUS blog, whose work I pinned at Smirconish.com today, and it's in the newsletter, but also a hat tip to Adam Liptak and Anamona Hartikolis at the New York Times, plus Robert Barnes and Nick Anderson at Washpo, because I've read all their work and I've pieced together uh, a bit of a narrative here, drawing on all three. I think I would get into the subject matter this way. In 2003, the the Supreme Court said, in a case regarding the University of Michigan, that race can be considered as part of the elements necessary to assemble a diverse student body. So you go back to 2003, it's a case called Grutter, Grutter v. Bollinger. Uh, They said, yes, you can consider race as an element When you're trying to put together a diverse student body, the two cases that have just been accepted by the court yesterday, one of them involves Harvard and the other involves the University of North Carolina. In each instance, with these two cases, lower courts found that the schools complied 
with the Supreme Court precedents that said race may be used as one factor that universities can consider among wide-ranging evaluation of applicants. Those who are challenging the status quo say the court needs to overturn those precedents and rule that considerations of race, which aid underrepresented black and Hispanic students, violate federal law and the Constitution. This argument, to think about it in political terms, is going to come next fall. In other words, the argument will take place next October-ish. There won't be a result until the spring of 2023. So it means that as we are going to vote in the midterms, this will be on people's minds because of the argument, but not because of a final determination. All right. So it was 2003, the Michigan case. You can consider race, right? Then six years ago, it was a University of Texas case. The issue, whether the University of Texas could consider race in undergraduate admissions. This was the case called Fisher. Now, follow me on this. This was a four to three majority. You're saying four to three. That's only seven. Yeah, I'll explain. You had the old swing vote, Anthony Kennedy, along with three liberals, Ginsburg, Breyer and Sotomayor. They comprised the four. Justice Kagan had recused because she'd been involved as Solicitor General, and Justice Scalia had recently passed. Okay, now, enter Donald Trump. So, no Merrick Garland confirmation, right? Justice Gorsuch gets approved. Kennedy retires, replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Ginsburg passes, replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. So the point is, it is a much different court now looking at affirmative action then last looked at it six years ago there's this group called students for fair admissions the founder is a guy named edward blum bloom blum i think same guy who was behind the fisher challenge and the same person behind the shelby county case that narrowed the voting rights act the mission of this organization that Ed Blum is the founder of is, quote, to restore colorblind principles to our nation's schools, colleges, and universities. He's the catalyst. He's the impetus for these two challenges. I have to say, something I really don't understand that I need to get to the bottom of, to me, the most intriguing aspect, how is it that one individual is able to get so much time from the Supreme Court of the United States, right? All these affirmative action cases and the Voting Rights Act. In a statement yesterday, Mr. Blum told the New York Times, Harvard and the University of North Carolina have racially gerrymandered their freshman classes in order to achieve prescribed racial quotas. Every college applicant should be judged as a unique individual, not as some representative of a racial or ethnic group. That's where he's coming from. In the Harvard case, the contention is that the university's race-conscious admissions discriminates against Asian Americans. That it may help blacks and it may help Latinos, but it but it's it's to the detriment of Asians. They say they are less likely to be admitted than similarly qualified black or Hispanic applicants. And remember, a district court 
and a court of appeals previously upheld Harvard's admissions. So they want the Grutter case from back in 2003. They want the Grutter case to be overturned. Harvard's response is to say that they take race into account, quote, in a flexible and non-mechanical way for the benefit of highly qualified candidates. They essentially say race is a limited factor, and it's been a limited factor for 40 years. Lawrence Bacow, TC, is that how he pronounces his name? Bacow? Bacow. Bacow. Lawrence Bacow says he's the president, that Harvard does not discriminate. He says that the court's acceptance of these cases puts at risk 40 years of legal precedent granting colleges and universities the freedom and flexibility to create diverse campus communities. Quote, considering race as one factor among many in admissions decisions produces a more diverse student body, which strengthens the learning environment for all. Mr. Blum, the challenger, says, well, wait a minute, we've got this data that shows a tendency for Harvard to give strong ratings to Asian American applicants for academic performance, but penalize them in ratings of their personal qualities such as leadership and compassion. Blum says, in our litigation, we've unearthed this internal Harvard review that suggests Asian Americans would be admitted in greater numbers if academic performance were the only criterion for admission, a study that the plaintiff contended Harvard buried. The university then responds by saying, well, that study was incomplete and preliminary. They deny that they discriminate against Asian American students or penalize them. You'll remember there had been a trial in Boston in U.S. federal court where Judge Allison Burroughs rejected those claims in a ruling for Harvard. That was three years ago. All right? Look, this is another case where elections have consequences. Because last June, the Supreme Court wanted the opinion of the federal government on the Harvard case. And where the Trump administration had supported the Blum challenges to the status quo... The Biden administration didn't want any changes to the law. So where the government had been on the side of those challenging affirmative action under Trump, now the government and, you know, they're 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 able to argue uh, this case. They're not a direct litigant, but they're able to argue this case on one side or the other. And the Supreme Court wanted to know where they stand. Now they've done a complete reversal. Not only does Donald Trump get you know, three appointments to the Supreme Court of the United States, but also brings the weight of the government solicitor general office on one side of the argument that has now changed with Biden. Then there's the North Carolina case. It's UNC at Chapel Hill. So it's the state flagship university. One difference, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but UNC is public, Harvard is private. So in the case of UNC, the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection applies. It doesn't in the case of Harvard. By the way, the only reason Harvard is being held accountable is because they accept federal funding. I, I can't help but think, why do they accept federal funding? Because if they if they just relied on their endowment and took no federal funding then there'd be no connection for the government to be involved in this case. UNC says they've implemented programs to increase diversity without considering race. 
UNC says, hey, we recruit low-income and first-generation college students. That's what we do. They also say that there's no alternative that would create a student body, quote, about as diverse and academically qualified as it is holistic, race-conscious admissions process. The university has embraced diversity, says the North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein. It considers race flexibly as merely one factor among numerous factors in its holistic admissions process. There had been a trial in Winston-Salem. The federal judge Loretta Biggs ruled in October that the school's method of choosing a class was constitutional, was not discriminatory. So where Harvard succeeded in fending against challenge in federal court for their admissions, UNC likewise has prevailed. Now the cases go to the Supreme Court of the United States. I'm almost finished. Is this cogent so far? I hope that it is. I'm getting it. From Robert Barnes at the Washington Post. Quote, uh, the court has said that colleges must consider whether race-neutral admissions practices can achieve their diversity goals. And it has forbidden the use of racial quotas to fill seats in class. Barnes goes out to point goes on to point out that some states, including California, Michigan and Florida, have banned the consideration of race in admission to public universities. Such measures enjoy substantial political support. In 2020, California voters decisively rejected a proposal to repeal the state's affirmative action ban. Barnes also reports that, you know, keep your eye on John Roberts. John Roberts sometimes seeks to be the Anthony Kennedy of the more recently comprised, meaning post-Kennedy court. But Barnes points this out. Roberts often plays a moderating role on the court and is reluctant to overturn the court's precedents. But he has been a steadfast opponent of affirmative action. The petition filed by challengers in the Harvard case made note of that in the first sentence, quoting an opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts during his first term in the court in 2006. And what did John Roberts say at the time? It is a sordid business, this divvying us up by race. The New York Times coverage noting that a ruling would, all concerned agree, likely reduce the number if the if the the if the challenge is successful if the blum challenge is successful and harvard and unc and all others are told you can't rely on race as even a single factor among many what would it really mean in practical terms in practical terms it would reduce the number of black and latino students at nearly every selective college and graduate students and it would benefit asian american and white students in their applications. When I looked last night, when I was cobbling together all my notes, when I looked last night, uh, there were 3,000 comments already to the Washington Post Supreme Court coverage. Here was the most popular. I I picked out just three comments that that I thought were of, of interest. First, there was this. College admissions have never been blind to the wealth and race of applicants. Remember when Jewish applicants weren't accepted? If the courts are going to disallow race in making decisions to build a diverse class, they should also disallow factors that help wealthier white kids. 
legacy admissions. AP courses that kids in minority and poor districts don't have access to. Expensive extracurricular activities. Expensive SAT prep courses. So one person said, well, if you're going to remove one advantage, then go ahead and remove other advantages. If you're taking away that which benefits the black and Hispanic students, then why don't you also get rid of that which benefits the white kids? Or there was this in response to the point about legacy admissions. People are always trotting out legacy admissions as though this is some big thing. Yes, it's a thing, but it accounts for only a minuscule percentage of admissions. No, we shouldn't have legacy admissions. But let's stop pretending that every white kid in college is there because of legacy admissions. Same goes for SAT prep, especially in an age when extensive test prep is available for free by such avenues as Khan Academy and big thick test prep books are available for free at most high school libraries or for $15 at Amazon. And in any case, more and more colleges are ditching SAT, ACT retirements. I agree, though, about extracurricular activities. If I were king of admissions, I would give significant points to those who held jobs in high school. The ultimate example of demonstrating responsibility, time management, teamwork, and many other positive traits. By the way, I love that last suggestion. I mean, I know this game. And how uh, those who can afford to are looking for summer jobs that enhance the resume. You know, they're 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 working uh, on a kibbutz. They're uh, assembling mosquito netting in in Africa. They're you know they're doing whatever they're doing instead of working at McDonald's. I've had this conversation here over a period of years. If I were in admissions and and I had an applicant in front of me and they said that they you know that they 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 scooped ice cream for a summer. Uh, I'd, I'd look at them very favorably if they showed up for work and, and they were competent in their job. And if the manager at Baskin Robbins had sent in, uh, you know, a, uh, a recommendation on their behalf, I'd, I would think that's terrific. Oh, yeah, that that last thing is really important. Uh, then there was this. One has to ask whether if race cannot be used as a criterion for acceptance, on what basis can athletic ability be used for this purpose? Can a candidate who is not as academically well-qualified as another candidate, but who happens to be a superior athlete, be admitted? I'm often mindful of unintended consequences. It strikes me that an adverse Supreme Court ruling could have a devastating effect on D1 athletic programs. And finally, from the New York Times, there was this. I'm going to share something shocking. Students can get excellent educations at schools other than the Ivies and then get jobs and be productive members of society. And the most important comment of all, I wish I'd written it myself, we desperately need to move away from the U.S. news rankings and consider the actual education. Amen, said as a parent who has overseen sons and daughters you know, nevertheless, working hard and succeeding in getting into those top-ranked schools. And me, you know, with my graying beard and infinite wisdom, I frankly look back and I say, was it all worth it? Was it all worth it? I have my doubts. I really do. 
more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.